All right, let's take our Bibles and turn to Galatians chapter 6. Galatians chapter 6. I have expressed gratitude to the Lord for the opportunity of being exposed to this great topic in greater detail, this relationship of Paul and the Mosaic Law, and kind of wrestling with that. I'm thankful for previous men and men who have gone on and are living before me that I've been able to profit from. And we know that what is the fulfillment of the law? Love Love is the fulfillment of the law. And for years, you may think this is crazy, but for years I was reluctant to study and preach on love in and of itself as a doctrine because of the way the vast number of churches had perverted it through the years. And now, if you recall, even in the news today, meaning not today, but during our time, that they are justifying the relationship between two men or two women because they say if it is loving, it must be of God. Because God is God is love. And would you call that a perversion? Yes. Because the God of love is the one who said man and woman. Okay, so so this theological liberalism that has promoted this has caused all kinds of difficulty. And I remember that it was the book of 1 Corinthians that really gave me the right perspective on this, to be able to preach on it with full conviction and persuasion. And going through this little series, this little breakout in the book of Galatians, this excursus has really given me a heart's delight as I have gone through it. So I want to read Galatians chapter 6 and verse 2. where the Scripture says, Bear one another's burdens, and thereby fulfill the law of who? The law of Christ. Now go over to 1 Corinthians chapter 9. These are the two places that directly mention the law of Christ. There are other phraseologies like the royal law, but here, 1 Corinthians chapter 9, And if we go down to verse 21, Paul says, To those who are without law, as without law, though not being without the law of God, but under the law of who? Christ. So Paul's not under the law that covenant, that Old Testament covenant, he's not under the law of God, not being without the law of God, but the law of God as expressed through the law of who? Christ. Everybody see that? He's not without the law of God, but under the law of Christ, who is God in human flesh. Now folks, there is a difficulty of kind of wrapping our minds around this topic. And as I've conversed with many of you, I do think that it would be helpful for us to remember that the Mosaic Covenant was a dispensation. Would you agree with that? People argue over the number of dispensations in the Old Testament, but... The Mosaic Covenant was a dispensation just like Adam was a dispensation. And Abraham, his age, was a dispensation. And the Mosaic Covenant was a dispensation. And the New Covenant also is a what? It's a dispensation. It is a season by which God deals with man through particular avenues. And one of the major characteristics of a dispensation is the giving of new revelation. And that means that there is, when you look at our scripture, 
and you look at those dispensations, <clears throat> there are some things that carry over dispensation to dispensation to dispensation. And there are other things that differ. For instance, in the Mosaic Covenant, <clears throat> did they have human priests exercising their duties within a temple? They did. New Covenant? Different, isn't it? Okay. We don't have a temple, the temple that we all take journey to, to stand before God, but each believer is a temple of the Holy Spirit, and the gathering together of God's people also is a dwelling place of God. And he calls every believer in the New Covenant a priest. And the priestly duties that we have is not the shedding of bulls and goats, but the shedding of interceding and praying one for another. That's how we exercise our priestly duty one to another. So that is different, isn't it? In the Old Testament, there were sacrifices. Are there sacrifices in the New Testament? Yes. We are a living sacrifice. Thanksgiving is the sacrifice of our lips, right? They are the sacrifices of reality. These are the realities. We're not living under a shadow of the reality. We're living in the reality of things. And so <clears throat> I think it would be helpful if you're, if you're a little concerned about, well, <clears throat> you know, is there continuity between the Mosaic Covenant and the New Covenant? Is there any discontinuity there? How do we relate to that? I think a major thing for us to understand is in every dispensation there is new revelation given. And folks, if you would turn to Hebrews chapter 8, I'm just introducing this here. <clears throat> Hebrews chapter 8. What you will find there is the writer of the book of Hebrews is very emphatic about this. When he talks about this copy and shadow of heavenly things that Moses himself erected, he says in verse 5, God told Moses, See, look, see that you make all things according to the pattern which was shown you on the mountain. Now note verse 6. But now. Everybody see that contrast? You have that Mosaic covenant, the Mosaic temple, the shadow, the copy. But now, He, that is Christ, has obtained a more excellent ministry by as much as He is also the mediator of a better what? A better covenant. You mean better than the Mosaic covenant? Yes or no? Yes. Far exceeding better. Which has been enacted on better promises. Now note verse 7. Why is that? Because if that first covenant, that Mosaic covenant, had been faultless, there would have been no occasion sought for a second. In other words, if you have a second there must be a fault with uh, the first one or you wouldn't, need a, you wouldn't need a second one. But the fault wasn't with the law. The fault was with us. Look at verse 8. For finding fault with them. Do you see that? In other words, the fault lies in our fallen humanity not in the Mosaic Covenant in and of itself. But finding fault, there was a problem with us. So what did God do? Verse 8. But finding fault with them, He says, Behold, days are coming, says the Lord, when I will effect a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. Now note verse 9. Not like the covenant which I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to lead them out of that land of Egypt, 
For they did not continue in my covenant, and I did not care for them, says the Lord. So whatever this new covenant is, it's not like the what? It's not like the old one. It's different. How is it going to be different? Verse 10. For this is the covenant I will make with the house of Israel. After those days, says the Lord, I will put my laws where? Into their minds, and I will write them where? Now folks, that implies new creation. I will write them in their minds, I will put my laws into their minds, I will write them on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people, that's relationship. And they shall not teach everyone his fellow citizen, and everyone his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for all of his people will know me. From the least to the greatest of them, because I will be merciful to their iniquities, and I will remember their sins, what? No more. That's totally different than the Mosaic Covenant, isn't it? So look at what he says, verse 13. When he says, now this is the point the writer of Hebrews is making. When he says, when God says a new covenant, he has made the first Everybody read that? Obsolete. Obsolete. So folks, who made the first obsolete? God did. God did. But whatever is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to disappear. So so my point here is I'm introducing this just from conversations that I'm having with you, very edifying conversations and really trying to get my mind wrapped around these types of things is that I think it would be helpful if we remember that the new covenant is a new dispensation of God. And a new dispensation has new revelation associated with it. Just like that Mosaic covenant, when God gave them that covenant, He wrote that on stones, did He give them new revelation? He did. He gave them laws and judgments. He gave them things that they were to do and commandments that they were to obey and sacrifices that were shadows that they were to present. All coming out of a heart of faith toward God. But they didn't do that. They thought that the law was given so that they could earn their own righteousness by that. And so, we, we today... And folks, if you really think about this, this will put a smile on your soul. We are today enjoying the reality of Christ under the new covenant. This is the reality, and one day we will be in the fullness of that reality. Now let me give to you a little review here on key points up to this point that we have looked at. These are points that I think that are helpful for me, and hopefully they are helpful for you. You've probably already taken some of these down, but I wanted to give these six. Number one, when we talk about the law in the, in the New Testament, it can refer, in the Bible, it can refer to something narrow like the Ten Commandments, or something as broad as what? All Scripture. All Scripture. The law can refer to written law, that is the law that was given to the Jew, or it can refer to the work of the law on all mankind. So whether it's written law to the Jew or work of the law on all mankind, Gentiles, both carry the same condemnation. Death. We are all under the law, we are all under condemnation before we are saved. Secondly, it is clear that Paul severely rejected the law as a covenant for New Testament believers. He's very emphatic about that. We're not under the law, but under grace. Okay, And Paul 
emphasizes that. There's no indication of Paul commanding us or exhorting us to walk after the law or to walk according to the law or to be filled with the law. We're to be filled with the Spirit, right? Or, Or how about this? Let the word of the law dwell richly in your hearts. Doesn't say that, does it? It says, let the word of Christ dwell richly in your hearts. But folks, there is a temptation, and this happened in our church by a man who's now with the Lord. But this happened in our church when we read into the Bible what we think that it is saying. And this particular man that is now with the Lord read this in the book of John. If you love me, can you finish that? Keep my commandments. And then the next statement was, we're under obligation to keep the Ten Commandments. What did he read into that? Ten Commandments. Commandments equal the Ten Commandments. But is that what Christ was saying? And so we need to make sure that when we're reading, we're really being careful with our Bibles. New dispensation, new covenant, new revelation, King of kings, Lord of lords, and He says to us, My commandments. Thirdly, the law is used prophetically. That is, it points us to Christ. It's our tutor to carry us to Christ. It's also used illustratively or as supportive as wisdom of new covenant commands and exhortations. So, it is right for us to admonish New Testament commandments by using Old Testament illustration. It is right for us to motivate one another by looking into Old Testament example so that we might persevere. It is right for us to use our Old Testament to encourage one another. And it is also right to use the Old Testament for supportive instruction. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right, support. The first commandment with promise is, honor your father and mother. Right? He's using it to support the command, children, obey your parents in the Lord. And folks, as far as the law is concerned, you can use it with fallen mankind because it brings the light of God to bear on their conscience. That is co-witnessing with what you're saying. And of course, when you think about these things as a believer, it does give you delight. I delight. I delight in the law of God after my my inner man. And so when you see those things rightly and you see those things as shadows and you see that we're in the reality of all that and you behold the whole thing of the Lord, it's just a joy to think about how God has structured all this through human history. And if I may be so bold to say no one but God could have done that. Fourthly, obedience flows from life, a rebirth. And that's the problem, isn't it? A new covenant was necessary so that God would do something inside of us. What that is, is a rebirth. We have been imputed the righteousness of Christ by repentance toward God and faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. And now we are to work out, not work for, work out that salvation that God has done for us. And folks, any other righteousness 
outside of faith in Christ is a self-righteousness. Did we hear that? Any other righteousness outside of faith in Christ is a self-righteousness, or as Paul would say in Philippians 3.9, it is a righteousness of my own. Now you're here in Galatians, or maybe you're here in Galatians, but in Galatians chapter 5, I want you to note here a passage. Galatians 5 verse 2, Behold, I, Paul, say to you, that if you receive circumcision, now with circumcision under the Mosaic Covenant, yes or no? Mm -hmm. Yes. If you receive circumcision, Christ will be of no benefit to you. I testify again to every man who receives circumcision that if you do that, you are under obligation to keep how much of the law? All of it. Everybody see that? In other words, Paul's not dividing it up, is he? Whole law. You've got to keep the whole thing. Then he's going to make a contrast, verse 5. For if for we through the through the what? Spirit. Do you see that? What's he contrasting? Mosaic law, spirit of life that's in Christ Jesus. But if we through the Spirit, by faith, we're waiting for the hope of righteousness. In other words, folks, No self-righteousness on our part. I'm waiting for my righteousness to come. And that righteousness is a man, Christ Jesus. Verse 6. Because in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision means anything. Nothing. All right. But folks, what does matter? Do you see that in the verse? What matters? Faith working through love. Do you hear what Paul's saying? Love is the fulfillment of the law, isn't it? And we have a problem. And the problem's not with the law, the problem's us. Fallen human being always say the problem is with the rules. They never say to themselves, the problem's me. It's always your rules, you're limiting my freedom. God says, look, the problem's not the law, the problem's man. So what we're going to do, we're going to have a new covenant. That new covenant is going to be my son. He's going to be their righteousness, he's going to be their obedience. He's going to earn their righteousness and He's going to impute His righteousness to them upon their repentance and faith in Him. There to work out that righteousness, there's going to be a birth in the heart of man. They're going to be my people, says the Lord. And I'm going to be their God relationship. And what matters is their faith, faith, the obedience of faith, working through what channel one to another? Love. And I'm just going to add this this phrase, cruciform love. Everybody see that? Folks, that's what matters. It doesn't matter so much about all the exterior rituals and all that type of thing and all the nice ceremony and all that. What matters is faith in Christ working out of our lives through what? Love. That's what matters. And folks, nobody, nobody, nobody can love until that love is birthed in them by the Spirit of God. Nobody.
Obedience flows out of faith in Christ through cruciform love. Galatians 5 verse 6. This is what matters. In Christ Jesus, circumcision doesn't matter. In Christ Jesus, uncircumcision doesn't matter. But this is what matters. Faith working through cruciform love. Everybody see that? That's what really matters. And parents, that's really what you want to see developing. In your children who profess Christ, that's what we want to see in our church developing. A stronger faith that works, labors through a stronger love. Growing faith, growing what? Love. Everybody hear what I'm saying? This is what I'm looking for. That we are doing what we're doing out of love to God and love to our fellow man. A sacrificial, a cruciform, a love that looks like the cross. Type of love, one to another. That is what is really, really important. And that might be a little bit different from what you thought was important. It might even be different from what some books you read says is important. And it might even be what's different than what you've heard preached before. But I don't think you can get any clearer than Galatians chapter 5, verse 6. Faith working by love. Number five. Grace is never the basis of sin. Shall we sin because we're not under the law but under grace? God forbid. God forbid. That is a step too far in your logic. God wants us to think. He wants us to use logic. But if our logic, because it can be interfered by our sinful nature, we can take a step too far. God forbid that that thought would ever come up in your heart. Now folks, God's grace does teach us, and I want you to turn to the book of Titus chapter 2. And I'm just picking this out out of several things. It says in verse 11, For the grace of God has appeared. Alright, now help me out here. When it says the grace of God has appeared, what is he talking about? Christ. Christ. Right? The grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all men, verse 12, instructing us. Everybody see that? We're talking about the grace of God, whether it's the person of Christ or the things that He exhorts or commands. Grace does teach us something. What does it teach us? I get to do whatever I want to do? Does it teach me that, you know what, unless there's an explicit passage, then I get to do it? Is that what grace teaches? Does grace teach unconditional love, in a sense? Look at what it teaches. It teaches us to deny ungodliness. Everybody see that? To deny ungodliness, and not just ungodliness, what else? Worldly desires. Do you have any of those in your fallen flesh? To deny ungodliness and worldly desires and to live sensibly, or the King James says soberly, righteously, and godly in this present age. This is what the grace of God teaches us whether it's out of the mouth of Christ Himself, whether it's the things He exhorts us or the things He commands us, this is what grace teaches. It doesn't teach liberality that I get to do whatever I want to do. And why is that? Because your your inner life has been changed. Your desires have been changed. 
your want-tos have been changed. Or, if we make it this far tonight, what's really changed, what's really at the bottom line of what God did in, in you, is He changed your love. He changed it from loving yourself and loving the things of this world to loving Him and to be willing to lay down your life for His namesake and for the church's namesake. Would you call that a radical change? That's a radical change. This cruciform type of love. It changes your thoughts about giving. It changes everything. I remember when I first got saved and I was dating a lost girl who did not become my wife, thankfully. And she said to me, what do you want to do tonight? And I said, I want to read the Bible. And she looked so disheartened. Literally, her face fell. Me? I was like, woo, this is wonderful. So, she said, okay. So, I got my Bible out. I opened it up. She sat down. And I started reading. I got like three verses. And she took the Bible, closed it, and said, that's good. Let's go party. I said, I don't want to party anymore. It wasn't that somebody told me not to party. I didn't want to. A change of love. Everybody see that? That has to go on in the heart of a human being. And folks, grace does not instruct us to accommodate our desires. It instructs us to put them to death. Romans chapter 8. Do we grow in that? We do. And may God cause us to grow in it more and more. So number six, our ambition is not merely to know right and wrong, but to know Christ. This is maturity. That you would count everything as dung for the excellency of the knowledge of Christ. That I may know Him and the power of His resurrection and the fellowship of His sufferings. This one thing I do, that's what I want. And I suppose that you would see by now that that's a whole different approach to life than what's right and what's wrong. Give me the five commandments that I have to do. It's relationship. Now that brings us to the law of Christ. And I want us to take our Bibles and turn to the book of Matthew. And I want to begin this. I really wish I had a whiteboard here, but I think I can do it with my hands, and I think if you would copy what I do with my hands on a piece of paper, I think you would really begin to see this. The nature of the law has been described by our Lord Himself. And in Matthew chapter 22, beginning in verse 34, The Pharisees had heard that Jesus had silenced all the questions and temptations that the Sadducees had given to Him. So the Pharisees, versed in the law, they gathered themselves together. Verse 35. One of them, a lawyer, asked Him a question testing him. Everybody see why he's asking the question. 
He's putting him to the test. Verse 36, Teacher, what is the great commandment in the law? Okay, so, so you got the law. The law can refer to something as narrow as the Ten Commandments or as broad as the Old Testament, right? So, so we're going we're gonna to take the whole Old Testament and, and I'm going to ask God in human flesh, all right, tell me what is the number one, the supreme one, the utmost law. Here it is, verse 37. And he said to him, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the great and foremost commandment. Does everybody see that? Did everybody hear what he just said? Okay. So, so if I was going to do a little chart, and we're going to chart the law, what I put at the top? Loving the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength. And folks, he's quoting from Moses. Deuteronomy chapter 6 and verse 5. That is the utmost one. Then he says, verse 39... The second is like it. Do you see that word like it? He's not saying this is the utmost one, but he's saying that it's like it because the first one deals with our relationship to God. The one that is like it deals with our relationship to who? Our fellow man. Our neighbor. Verse 39, the second is like unto it. You shall love your neighbor as who? As yourself. And that is a quote from the book of Leviticus, chapter 19 and verse 18. Now folks, note verse 40. On these two commandments rest or depend the whole law and the who. All right, so here's what you got. If I'm, I'm, I'm going to, they're not equal, but you got the utmost commandment, right? And you got one that's like it. I'm going to put it a little lower over here. Okay. Then hanging on those two, could you hang the Ten Commandments? Half of those commandments deal with our relationship to God and half of them deal with our relationship to our neighbor. fellow man or neighbor. So I'm hanging those there. So I've got, I've got all those ten. And you know what flows out of that? All the other judgments and case law and everything else that you read in the Mosaic Law. Okay, So you've got all of these commandments hanging on the Ten Commandments, hanging on the utmost commandment to love God with all your heart and the one that is similar, loving your neighbor as, your, as yourself. All right. What is the common theme between verse 37 and verse 39? Your what? Love. Your love. And if you want to go back and listen to a message that I preached in John chapter 13 when he says, a new commandment I give to you that you love one another, I go through every place in the Old Testament where the Old Testament commands us to love. And you know what the interesting thing is? Is that in the culture today, you hardly ever hear, now this is 
the thing you need to be doing, loving God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. No, what they emphasize is loving your your neighbor as yourself. And then you hear foolishness like, well, I can't love my neighbor as myself unless I love myself. It's not what that's teaching. Brethren, it's all about your love. It's all about the orientation of the compass of your soul. So if you say the common thing between those two great commandments, the greatest and the great, and you say it's love, then doesn't it make sense that love is the fulfillment of the law? Yes or no? Yes. Yes, it's right there in the text if you make the proper deductions. And we are to instruct one another to practice in our lives to be changed in our inner man to love the Lord our God with everything we have. And folks, what I've just said to you is true of God Himself. Does God love Himself supremely? Yes. And out of that supreme love for Himself flows love to His creation. And folks, I've said this before. If I'm loving God with all my mind, all my strength, all my soul, all my heart, there's no love left. Right? So how am I going to love my neighbor as myself if I'm loving God with every part of my being? Because it is out of that love to Him flows... Love to the creation. Love to our fellow man. So what's the best way, what's the best thing, brother, you can do for our church is love God supremely. Because the more you love Him supremely, the more you'll love us. The more I love God supremely, the more I'm going to love my wife. The more she loves God supremely, the more she's going to love me. Everybody see that? And we know what that love looks like when we look at the incarnate Son of God. Until we see Him, love is kind of like a fuzzy grammar word. If I say God is love, you can immediately put all kinds of self-definition on that. Someone once asked me, what is the definition of love? Because 1 Corinthians 13 doesn't give a definition, it gives the outworking of it. Love is patient. Love is kind. How would you define love? That's simple. God. But folks, God is a spirit. It's kind of fuzzy out there, right? Until you look at the incarnate Son of God, then you see what love is and looks like in the life of a man. And I'm just going to stop here for the sake of time, but I want to conclude by turning to John chapter 3. I've been making the supposition that what has to change in the heart of a boy or a girl, woman or man, has to be their love. Does the Bible back that up? I think so. But let me conclude with this, another piece of evidence. Look in John 3, verse 16. You know what verse 16 is? 
It's the famous football placard. Right? John 3.16. For God so loved the world that He gave... Does that sound like cruciformity? He gave His only begotten Son that whoever believes in Him shall not perish but have eternal life. Because God did not send the Son into the world to judge the world. That's later. But that the world might be what? Saved through Him. Verse 18. He who believes in Him is not judged. He who does not believe has been judged already. Why? Because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. Okay, so everybody following me here. Verse 19. This is the judgment. You want to see what the judgment is? Here's the judgment. This is the judgment. That light has come into the world in the person of who? Jesus Christ. God so loved the world, He sent His only begotten Son. Light has entered into the world. And here's the problem, verse 19. And men loved the darkness rather than the light. Folks, what's the problem? Our love. That's where the problem's at. Men love darkness rather than the light that is Christ. Why? Because their deeds are evil. They know that. Verse 20. Because everyone who does evil hates the light. Now folks, what's the opposite of hate? Love. Love. It's a love problem. Hates the light and does not come to the light for fear that his deeds will be what? Folks, that's what light does, right? Why do lost people enter into a New Testament church and they make statements like this? Oh, most loving congregation church I've ever been to. Oh, they preached the Bible. Wonderful. Are you coming back? No. (laughs) Why? Why would they say nothing wrong, everything great. Why would would they say no? Because they love darkness. Why don't they come to light? Their deeds will be exposed. They will find out that they are not as righteous as they think they are. As long as they can cover it over, everything's happy. Now, look at verse 21. But he who practices the truth comes to the light. Now folks, how could that happen? How could it be that men love darkness rather than light because their deeds are evil, but now you've got a group of people who are coming to the light? How could that happen? Their love has changed. And look at what's happening here. Verse 21. He who practices the truth comes to light. Why does he come to light? So that his deeds will be exposed. (laughs) Do you see that? Now hold it. It's not that this person delights in being shown he's a sinner. What is he delighting in? What... Why, why is this man who loves the light coming to the light so that his deeds may be exposed 
because what he is loving and delighting in is that his deeds have been wrought by who? God. In other words, they joy to see grace operating in their life. And they love God with all their heart, with all their mind, with all their soul. In this fallen world, where there's always more that we could love Him. But they come to light because they want to sit under that light because they want God to labor in them and change them into that glorious image that they are beholding. And it all comes down to your love. Your love. How are you going to get it? Rebirth. You have to be given the life of God in your soul. And folks, when a person begins to love God, then things take on a different nature. I wasn't too crazy about going to church when I was lost. I knew it was the right thing to do. Nice people there. They fussed a lot. I watched them going into the church building. But they look they look pretty good. They dressed right, at least for that church day. They were carrying their Bibles, some of them, depending on what church I went to. They were okay, but you know, if something else came up, that's fine too. But when I got born again, things changed. And the first thing that happened to me, this is anecdotal, not necessarily scriptural order, but the first thing that happened to me is I wanted to be with the people of God. I wanted to be with them. Yes, you, as imperfect as you are. I wanted to hear the Scripture proclaimed. I wanted to know the one who saved me better. I wanted to please him, not to earn a righteousness, but I wanted to please him because of what he's done in my life. My chains fell off. (laughs) I arose and followed him. This is salvation, a change of love. Imperfect, in a believer? Answer, yes. yes. But one day, one day, we will shine in the, with light of His love. Let's pray.